Well, it is a privilege to be here this morning, and uh, Jesse received me on late notice. I think he got an email at the beginning of the week saying, hey, the superintendent has a free Sunday. Would you be willing to let him stand in? And uh, he was gracious enough to do so. So I'm grateful for that, Jesse, especially on this very important day when the Barners are here visiting and you have a dedication for a grandchild. Uh, my wife and I are parents to two grand, well, grand, grandparents to two granddaughters. And uh, we know that life is better with grandchildren. Amen? It just is, and so to be here on this day is a blessing for me as well. I wish that my wife could be here. We're still in the throes of transition, so she's uh, back in Massachusetts making preparations for our transition to Florida, which will occur over the summer. And uh, to tell you a little bit more about our family, we have three children. Our oldest is a daughter who is married. She lives in downtown Chicago. Uh, her and her husband uh, have lived there for about seven years. They're involved with a church plant uh, there uh, outside of the Alliance, so keep praying for them. Um, but they're doing a great job and a great work in downtown Chicago that they're involved with. He works in information technology uh, for a company there. Uh, we also have a son who is married, and they're the ones with our two granddaughters. He's a pastor in New England for the Christian and Missionary Alliance and they live about a mile and a half from us at present. So the move to Florida is going to be a big deal for us because we're leaving two granddaughters behind. And then we have a son, Christian, who is 25. And Christian's a big part of our story in life. For those of you who've gotten to know us a little bit by hearing some of the things we've shared publicly already, you know that Christian is profoundly disabled. And so he is the means through which we've learned a lot about ourselves and the grace of God, quite honestly. And uh, he'll be making the transition from Massachusetts down here uh, with us over the summer as well, which represents a pretty big change for him. So you can pray for Christian as he comes to mind uh, as well. I wish Chris were here today. Uh, as most husbands say, you would like her more than you would like me. So uh, this would go better if she were here, but she's not here. She'll be here soon. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you open it to the book of Acts chapter 16 or pull out your device or however it is that you access scripture. We don't have time today to read the entire chapter, but the chapter itself is our context for what I want to be able to share with you uh, here. And as you're turning to the 16th chapter of Acts, I'm going to say a prayer and then we'll begin looking at God's word and hopefully making application to our own lives as we consider what God says in these specific verses. So find your way, Acts chapter 16, and then would you bow for a word of prayer with me. Father, as has already been said, uh, we commit ourselves to you in this moment. And so what I do is commit myself further to the end that has been prayed already today that you would be pleased to take a fallen person who has experienced the redeeming grace of God, who together with the people of God have set aside these moments in this given day to look inside this book. This book that has been preserved throughout human history since its writing, this book that will be preserved for eternity, this book that guides us in all matters of life and faith. 
and you would use it again because combined with the movement of the Spirit inside of us and among us, it ministers in a way that affects both life and eternity. We pray, Father, that as we consider what it is that it has to say, our own lives would be altered in some meaningful way, leaving us with this conclusion. It was good once more for us to open the covers of Holy Scripture and consider what it says, having spoken to ancient and now even to modern people. To the end that this would glorify your name and be for our good, we continue to pray and ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, it's not very long uh, before you realize in life that you will be thrust into the position of having to make some pretty consequential decisions. And sometimes you don't feel prepared for those, but you're somewhere around 16, 17, maybe it's delayed as late as 18 years old or so before someone starts asking you, hey, Tom, what is it that you intend to do with your life? You remember those questions? You're coming toward the end of your high school experience and someone says to you, you know, uh, after the age of 18, after they hand you that diploma and you sort of move the tassel from one side to the other, you got a whole bunch of decisions that you need to make. And the world is kind of your oyster and you can do with yourself whatever it is that you want to do. Remember those days when somebody said to you, you can be whatever you want to be. You can be the president of the United States if you want to be the president. You can be a fireman. You can do whatever it is that you want to do. And pretty soon, uh, when you're a teenager, even an older teenager, uh, you begin to feel the weight of those consequential decisions. Someone asks you, like, are you going to enlist in the military? Or are you going to enroll in college? What vocational pursuit are you going to are you going to sort of undertake as you think about the direction of your life? Do you want to be in medicine or education or finance or in the trades or human services? Do you want to own your own business or do you want to work for somebody else? I remember those kinds of questions. Uh, they were pretty daunting at that stage in my life. I said to folks who were asking me those questions, listen, I'm just learning how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on my own and you want me to sort of set the direction of my life? But it just happens. All of a sudden, the decisions are yours. What are you going to do? And so you do, you either enlist or you get a job or you go into the trades or you enroll in college. And then somebody asks, well, where do you wanna to go to school? A couple of years into that experience, somebody says to you from an office somewhere, you gotta declare a major. I mean, the first couple of years are general education, but you know, the next couple of years, you gotta really focus on what it is that you're gonna do with your life. Remember that pressure? And you decide. I remember I was on the campus of Nyack College and I thought my primary goal in life is to make money. I still hadn't really fully devoted my life to Christ at that point, only to discover in time that God had a different plan for my life. And so I went and changed my major from business to Bible. That's a pretty big shift. You get out of school and somebody says, well, where are you gonna move to? Where are you gonna live? What are you gonna do? Most of us make that decision based on the opportunities that are presented to us, right? 
I mean, I moved with that Bible degree back home where I went to because the church where I grew up, that little town was all of a sudden in need of a pastor. And so I said, well, I think that's what I'm gonna do with my life. I'm gonna be a pastor. So I might as well move back home where I'm from and find a church that needs a pastor because I need a job. I've got a family. I gotta collect a check at the end of the week. I wanna honor God and I've gotta support them. And this just seems to make sense. And so that's what I did because the opportunities were there. And my wife was pursuing her graduate education. And so we wanted her to go to a university was back in that area. And so it just seemed to make sense. And then somebody says to you, hey, uh, like for most of us, uh, where do you really want to live, you know, long term? And we sort of make decisions based on not only the opportunities, uh, we say, well, I'd really like to live here. Given my choice, I would live right here. That sort of sets in motion a set of decisions like what kind of social circles are you going to move in? What kind of friends do you want to have in life? Somewhere in your early to mid-20s, most of us begin thinking about, hey, and you know, if I'm going to have a lifetime partner, a spouse, I, I, I'm kind of curious, what kind of person do I really want to be married to? When I was that age, I said, well, anybody who would marry me. At that point, I think I'm most interested in them. By God's grace, he brought Chris into my life, which I'm immensely grateful for. Now, 35 years of marriage, she was the right person for me. You know, those are pretty consequential decisions, aren't they? And they all happen somewhere in that, that span, right from about 16, 17, 18, into your early, maybe mid or even later 20s. I got married when I was 20 years old. My wife was a little older than me. We got married. I won't tell you how much older because she doesn't like me to do that. But today when I said to our kids, I got married when I was 20, they were, you were 20 when you got married, dad? That's really young because they got married a little later than that. I said, I know, but somewhere in there, you're making these most consequential decisions of life. And they seem to be yours to make, don't they? I mean, what do you want to do? Okay, I want to do this, and you get to decide. But somewhere along the way, if you have devoted your life to Christ, and you live as a follower of Jesus, you discover sooner or later that all of the consequential decisions of life are not left up to you in the end, are they? They're really not. I mean, think about it. When was the last time that you intended to do something with your life, whatever it was, something notable. You really did want that job over there or you wanted to live over here. You wanted to move back to the place where you were from because you had such a good experience growing up there that you wanted your kids to have the same kind of experience that you had. Or maybe you really did want to marry that person over there. You thought she was the ideal candidate for a wife. Or you thought he was the man of your dreams, or that was the perfect job. And if you could just get all of those circumstances to come together, why life would be perfect, at least from your estimation, only to discover in short order that for whatever reason, you and God seem to be on different pages. Has that ever happened to you? You're going to make a decision about your life, but God has a plan for your life, and for whatever reason, he doesn't seem obligated to consult with you about how your life's going to go. Have you ever figured that out? 
I, I mean, if you haven't figured it out, let me assure you that if you follow Jesus for any length of time, sooner or later, you're going to have an experience like that. I remember leading one of my uh, college friends to Christ. I began giving him a Bible and I was talking to him about the Lord and I gave him sections of scripture to read. And I said, listen, Rich, we'll get back together and we'll read um, these portions of scripture and you can ask me any and every question you wanna ask me and I'll try to do uh, the best that I can to answer your questions about the Bible. And I'm just a new follower of Jesus myself, having come to faith as a senior in high school. And I remember the day that he said to me, Tom, I do have some questions that I want to ask you, but, but there's a problem with God and the Bible. And I thought, well, this is going to be a great conversation. And this is what he said to me. He said, you know, Tom, here, here's the problem with God. And I said, well, do tell. He said, the problem with God is that he thinks he's God. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I've read enough of scripture to, dis, to, to determine this, that every once in a while, God decides what's going to happen in the world and in your life. And he, again, doesn't feel any obligation to consult with you beforehand as to whether or not you think it's a good idea. Now, we have a, a word for that. It's not an oft-used word in society anymore. That word is sovereignty, right? It's where God in his infinite and merciful wisdom decides that he's going to exercise supreme power and authority to do whatever it is that he decides to do. And for whatever reason, on occasion, God exercising such sovereignty can feel incredibly personal at times, can it not? I mean, for Chris and I, quite honestly, this move from the Northeast to Florida, I mean, it's felt incredibly personal where God has orchestrated a set of circumstances to direct our life in a manner and in a way and in a time that we could never have anticipated. We didn't wake up one day and say as we were praying in the morning, oh Lord, move us to Florida. We had, we had no idea. We just knew that there was this sense that our season of life, the way it had been in ministry was sort of coming to a close and God, what, whatever it is that you want us to do with our lives, we'll do it. If you want us to pastor a church or you want us to go into human services, whatever it is that you want us to do. But God began to sort of orchestrate circumstance. Isn't that what he does with your life and mine? Now, sovereignty is the kind of word that you've got to treat carefully. Because when you say in this society to modern people, there's actually a God who sits in heaven and he holds vast, deep, widespread power and authority over your life and mine. And he does what he wills at times. And he doesn't ask you as to whether or not you think whatever he chooses to do is a good idea. That notion doesn't sit well with modern people. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, most of us grow up in a world where our kids are told from day one, you're the captain of your own ship. You make your decisions. You do with your life what you want to do with it. I mean, it's why we're, we're riddled in society today with subcultures that have led to the disunity that we have inside of our country and world. And I understand the concern. Wherever that kind of power is vested inside of human authority, ultimately it degenerates, does it not? It's John Dahlberg's words. All power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
don't have those kinds of concerns with God, do you? Let me say this to you, friends. You don't have those kinds of concerns with God because while there is such sovereignty vested in him, you know this, his character is absolutely good and pure. Amen? There's no question as to whatever it is that God decides to do in the world or however personal the decisions and actions of God or the movement of the Holy Spirit and however personal it becomes for you and however it affects your life, there's no question in the end that it's good because of who he is. And that's what makes sovereignty palatable for you, however personal it may feel. It's why we accept it. And it's why I ask you to turn to the 16th chapter of Acts, because if there was ever a story in Holy Scripture where the plans of people and sovereignty intersect and sovereignty wins the day, if you will, it's the 16th chapter of Acts. I mean, think about it. To give you a little bit of context so that you know exactly what's going on here, and then we'll move along into the chapter really quickly. You've got the Apostle Paul, who you know used to be a persecutor of the church. His name was Saul. He has this profound experience where he hears the voice of God. He comes to faith in Jesus. He has this name change from Saul to Paul. And then God says, I intend to use your life in a way that you could never have imagined. In the end, he'll say to Paul, I intend to make you a trophy for grace so that people may not remember everything that you say, though you can't forget a lot of what the apostle says because most of it's recorded in the New Testament. And so you have it there before you to revisit. But he says, I want you to know that more than anything else, your life's gonna be a trophy of what I can do with the person whose life seems to be headed in a different direction altogether. I'm gonna turn your life around. I'm actually gonna use you for my glory. And most people will marvel and say, if that can happen for him, it's possible in my life as well. You've met people like that, right? I mean, you met people where you say, wow, God did a profound work in their life. And so God sort of resets the trajectory of, of Paul's life. And Paul goes on these long extended trips. We call them missionary journeys, three of them in his lifetime. He has this plan as he goes throughout the known world to sort Establish these centers of sort of faith, gospel communities, churches. And on the second of these trips, he's got this plan where he and some of his associates, Silas, Luke, Timothy, his young protege, are going to travel through the center of this large continental landmass that we know today as modern day Turkey. It was called Phrygia back then. And what his plan is, is this. He'll travel through all these established Roman uh, roadways because Rome is the vast empire of the day and it's got relationships with neighboring countries and if those other countries don't cooperate they'll just take them over in time anyway and so if he can evangelize the Roman Empire as it expands throughout the world then the gospel will expand as well it's a good plan I mean it really is it's like you know the internet of today I mean I don't know how many pastors I sit with now post-COVID who say this I've got two sort of versions of attendance today. I got all the people who show up on Sunday morning and take a seat here in the room. And then I've got all the people who are on the other side of that camera right now. And the gospel is going to places it would never have gone to people it would never have reached pre-COVID. 
I mean, God in his infinite wisdom and mercy is allowing things inside of his sovereignty. And so Paul just sort of looks at this plan. It seems rather strategic. It makes sense. And off he goes. There's just one problem. For whatever reason, God in his wisdom decides not to cooperate with the plan. I mean, it's really what what happens? I mean, look at verse six in the 16th chapter of Acts. Here it is. Paul and his companions, having traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, now having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Think with me for a moment. Let me ask you the question I posed a few moments ago. When's the last time you intended to do something with your life? I don't care how young or how old you are. And I will say this, if you're really young today, if you keep following Jesus, you'll have those kinds of experiences. Your tendency will be to chafe when they come and say, hey God, what's up? I've got a good plan for my life. You don't seem to have been informed of that plan. And if you have been, you don't seem to be cooperating. I don't care how young you are. In that moment, please pause and embrace the plan of God that's emerging, that's becoming apparent to you. Because that plan will always result in a different trajectory for your life. And it will always result in something that's not only holy and honoring to God himself, it will affect your life, the lives of your family, it will affect the lives of people you would never have come in contact with otherwise, except for that you pause and say, okay, God, then what's your plan? I mean, Paul's plan is a good one, and he's motivated for all the right reasons, as you probably were at times when God decided to do something different with your life. Maybe you wanted to go work for a ministry. You have some expertise or experiences you could sort of lend to the organization, but God wouldn't let you. You wanted to fly to the West Coast to be with a hurting friend or a family member. For whatever reason, God didn't allow it. You really did want to move back home where you were born and brought up because you wanted your kids to have that experience, but but no green light from God. He's just orchestrating circumstances and speaking, hear me, in the language of events to do with your life what he has determined. I mean, after all, that's what God does sometimes. My friend Rich was right. The problem with God is that he knows. He doesn't just think. He knows he's God. What you and I learn in time is that that sovereignty is accompanied by mercy. Now, think about what's happening here. Paul and his associates plan to go west. The Bible says the Holy Spirit tells us they can't do it. If they can't go west, I mean, if you've traveled through this landmass and you decide to take a left-hand turn and God says, no, you can't go that way, well, if you can't go west, why don't you just go east? If you can't go left, go right. And they decide to do that. Except for, look at verse 7. We read verse 6. Look at verse 7. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Interesting set of circumstances, isn't it? You've got a plan. You've traveled north. You decided to go west. No. East. No. I mean, you can keep going where you're supposed to go, except there's a problem. They can't really go in that direction any longer because they're headed toward the sea. So they do what they should do. They end up in this coastal town of Troas. It's along what's known as the Aegean Sea. And uh, if they go west from this point, they're going to drown. That doesn't seem like a good idea. 
If they go east now from this point, they're going to go back in the direction that they came from. That doesn't seem right. I mean, it doesn't seem that God's telling you to go back again. And I have to believe by this point that Paul's associates have a few questions of their own. Maybe they're just whispering among themselves. Do you think he really knows what he's doing? Any leaders here ever been in a circumstance in life where you know there are people behind you asking that question? Do you think she really knows what she's doing? Do you think he really has any idea how to get us from where we are to where we need to be? That's Paul's situation right here. And here's what he knows. He knows enough not to push in a direction where the Holy Spirit's saying, don't go there. Most of us in this room have lived long enough, followed Jesus long enough to know that's good advice. Wouldn't you agree? Right? So whisper it to your children and to your grandchildren. Whisper to them. I mean, one of our children is right now in a season of discernment. And I say to them, listen, I don't know the answer. And as tempting as it would be for me as your father to say, hey, go do this with your life. All I can tell you is this. Pray for all your worth. Listen. You know how you hear the voice of the Spirit. Watch the circumstances of life because God does speak in the language of events. And then go in the direction that becomes apparent to you. But if there's a direction that's apparent you should not go in, please don't push the door open. Right? Don't do that. Paul's sort of in that circumstance and he has no idea exactly what he should do. So you know what he does? He just does what probably you and I should do in a circumstance like that. He goes to bed. Sometimes the answer is a nap. Right? I mean, that's what he does. He goes to bed. And in his sleep, he gets a dream. I mean, you don't always get God to speak to you in a dream. I think in my lifetime, maybe two, three times where I knew I woke up, that wasn't the result of bad pizza the night before. That was really the Holy Spirit speaking to me. Because while I'm sleeping, God is never sleeping. Don't you know that? He's always awake, so he has this privilege to speak to me while I'm sleeping. And Paul gets a dream. It's somebody from an area known as Macedonia. It's Greek. He hollers across the waters to him. Hey, why don't you come over here? And he heads toward modern-day Europe, an area little talked about in the Bible. No plan whatsoever to go there. He wakes up in the morning and says to his friends, I don't know exactly what the future holds, but I just know this. We're supposed to go there, and we leave immediately. Don't you love it when things become that clear? When God just makes his direction that apparent? And they do. They land. Apparently, this first landing spot, they don't get any sense that they're supposed to stay there, so they move on. And you know where they land next? In a little town called, or a little city called Philippi. You recognize the name. I mean, we've got a whole section of the New Testament that Paul writes back to what will become the church in Philippi. We know it as Philippians. Like the city Philadelphia for us is the city of brotherly love. Philippi becomes known as the city or the church of joy. If you want to know how to be happy or joyful in life, study Philippians. It's not that long. You're looking for joy. You're looking to come out of COVID and feel better than you felt in the last year or year and a half. Study Philippians. I mean, it's great advice in there. And they don't know exactly what to do when they get there, so they just go down to the water's edge to pray. And there they run into a woman named Lydia. She's a seller of fine purple cloth. And they begin to tell her, we're here for this reason. And wonderfully, 
her heart is open to Paul's message. She receives Jesus. Eventually, her entire family become believers in Jesus, and they're baptized as followers of Christ. And here's what I want to say. Yay, God. I mean, really, yay, God, if that's the result of you exercising dominion over my life, if the results can be as remarkable as that, then lead on. You be in charge. In recent days, God has reminded me over and again that my life is for his glory. My life is for his glory. And you have that same commitment. It's why in part you're seated here today. And so when you walk back through those doors today and you go out into that parking lot and you get in your vehicle and you go wherever it is that Jesus directs you to be, where you live, move, and have your, your being in him, whisper all along the way, today, my life for your glory, God. It's remarkable what will happen as a result, is it not? I mean, it can be a conversation with a sailor on an airplane. You know, who knows? I mean, it may be. You can't orchestrate those circumstances, but here's what I want you to know. The gospel expands around the world when ordinary people make this decision that a sovereign God can have extraordinary control of my life. That's what makes us different, quite honestly, than people who do not follow Jesus. We have plans, but our plans are like the son who said to the father, not my will, but yours be done. Yeah, Paul had a great plan. But do you know how the gospel actually begins to spread around the world from this point forward? You can trace it historically. Paul stays in Philippi, Lydia, some other people begin to embrace the message. A little church springs up right there in Philippi. That church will become incredibly supportive of his missionary endeavors and efforts. That church will supply prayer. That church will supply resource, finances. will say, who do you need us to send to help you? And eventually, you can watch it. The gospel will spread ultimately from Philippi. It will go west. It will go to the country of Spain. From Spain, the gospel will go on to France. You can trace it. From France, the gospel will go to the UK. And you know what will happen in time? In time, people who are being religiously persecuted will board some ships. And they will sail from the UK to the shores of a new America. And they will come ashore in a little known area called Plymouth, Massachusetts. And they will bring with them, friends, this commitment. We bring not only our desire for a different way and a different life in a new land, but we bring this commitment. With us comes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they will begin to tell anyone and everyone that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He went to the cross. He was crucified for our redemption. They laid his body in a tomb. He lay there for three days, but by the same spirit that's available to you today, the Father reached into that tomb and brought his dead body back to life. All kinds of people saw him alive in the world. They witnessed the, the signs of crucifixion, his wounds, 
And one day he ascended back to the right hand of God the Father where he sits right now and makes intercession on your behalf and mine. And one day very soon he's going to leave that seat and he's coming back into the world again. And one day those of us who have said, this sovereign God can have control over my life, our feet, if we're alive at that moment, will be lifted from this sod. We will join him in the air so forevermore to be with the Lord. And preceding us in just a moment before that will be all those who've fallen asleep in Jesus. The ground will open up and give up its dead and those who have died in Christ will be raised back who were once noble are now immortal you see that's what happens when people regardless of their age and their experience say a sovereign God has control over my life each and every day now there's a lot more in this text and time doesn't allow us to go into all of it but go home today and read the remainder of Acts 16 if time allows. The final verses of this chapter should come with sort of a seatbelt warning. I've been doing a lot of flying lately. I don't even know how many flights I've taken and I'll fly out again this evening. And I'm always comforted when the pilot comes on and says, listen, it looks like we got a smooth flight today. I'm always a little unsettled when the pilot comes out and says, listen, there's going to be some bumps along the way. It's going to be bumpy getting up, and it's going to be a pretty bumpy ride all along the way, and a little bumpy going back in. We're going to leave the seatbelt signs on. That's never an experience I'm looking forward to. The end of Acts 16 should sort of come with that kind of disclaimer for the Apostle Paul and one of his close friends and associates. You're doing everything that I've asked you to do for all the right reasons in the place and time I've asked you to be there to do it. But though you are, um, things will still not be easy. That too doesn't make sense to modern people, does it? In an era where even the gospel has been adulterated to an extent where we think God's job up there in heaven is to sort of look out and watch out for me, I mean, after all, God, I'm where I'm supposed to be, doing what I'm supposed to be doing at the time I'm supposed to be there. And, you know, if I do my part, why don't you do your part, which I think is to look out for me, right? Well, Paul and Silas have learned that life doesn't go according to any such formula, does it? You can be right where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing, and the diagnosis comes. Suffering sort of awaits you on the doorstep. You didn't ask for it. They've also learned this, that suffering doesn't come necessarily because you've done anything wrong. And neither is it sort of delayed because you're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing that's right. They're preaching the gospel, telling people how to be saved. And a, a young fortune teller possessed by an evil spirit keeps coming behind them and saying what's true. These men are telling you how to be saved. It's just that she says it in a way that's a distraction. And when Paul can take it no longer, he turns one day and says, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And she's delivered by that evil spirit. Aren't you pleased when our witness is accompanied by a demonstration of God's power, something we desperately need in our world and in our churches? only for her owners to discover she can't generate any more income because she can't tell the future anymore. They seize them. They beat them within an inch of their life. They throw them into the dungeon. And in the middle of the night, these two servants of God, instead of bemoaning their circumstances and crying out to God and saying, hey, what's up? You see where we are here, don't you? 
they decide in the midst of their dark moment, instead of lamenting, they decide to sing. They sing. Listen, I don't have a very good voice, but I love to sing. I always make sure the microphone's off. The sound booth always tells me, don't worry, pastor, we mute it. I never trust them. I always turn the microphone off, right? I don't want anybody to hear me sing. And in moments like that, I don't want anybody but heaven to hear me sing or my wife because my voice, it's broken, it's faltering, but I have learned this as have you. In my darkest moment, I will sing And they sing for all their worth. And the ground begins to shake. I have no idea why in his infinite mercy, God has decided that when people who are hard-pressed decide to sing praise, he shows up and does something. I've just noticed that he does. And he shows up and he shakes the foundation of the dungeon so hard, in fact, that shackles fall off and cell doors are flung open. And everybody knows something marvelous and miraculous has happened in this moment. And the jailer realizes that everybody has been freed and it means his life. So before he can fall on his sword, the apostle screams out, don't do it. Come in, light the lamps. You'll find we're all here. And what does he ask? Not how did all this happen? He asks this question, how can I too be saved? Listen, in a world that's going sideways, the most profound evangelistic message you have at your disposal is to say to the people of this society, I will not be left undone. Because there is a sovereign God who's merciful. He watches every step of my life and he's going to care for me all the days of my life. I trust him. And I tell you, they too will ask this. How can I have what you have? So I close with this. Philippi is known as the city in the church of joy. How did it become so joyful? I believe it became the church marked by joy because of how it began. How it began. Two guys, literally, once again, beaten within an inch of their life, gaping wounds, decide that they're going to sing songs in their darkest hour. And it leads to their deliverance. The magistrates say, just leave town quietly. They say, no, we're going back to Lydia and the church. And they encourage, it means to exhort, to come alongside them. And they say these words. Can't you imagine what Lydia asked? Paul, Silas, how did it all go wrong so quickly? How did it unravel? I mean, we even began to question, would they come for us? Or was your message really true? How could something like that happen to somebody so noble? And can't you hear what Paul said? Lydia, never forget what we told you. We had no idea we were coming to you. Don't you know we told you we tried to go west and then we tried to go east and then we tried to sail in that direction. But God spoke to us and told us to come right here, right to you, right now. So even though things unravel, Lydia, in the world, 
know that God is not unsettled. He's still sovereign, and he directs us. And we were right where we needed to be at the moment we were there. So if you too should someday have to wear the scars of your commitment to Jesus, know he can be trusted. And praise became our deliverance. It will be yours too. Hear me. The same is true for modern people. Amen? We sing praise to a sovereign and a very good God. Thank you.